Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm delighted you're joining us. If you're not already a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a nice review if you would. This week, the perilous state of the world. Could we already be in the early stages of a great power conflict on multiple fronts, just like previous world wars? With China pondering military support for Russia's war in Ukraine, another U.S. intelligence agency concluding that the coronavirus did start by leaking out of a Wuhan lab, and heightened tensions over China's surveillance operations over the U.S., relations between Washington and Beijing are deteriorating rapidly. All this as China steadily escalates its threats to recapture the island of Taiwan. Meanwhile, we had reports this week that Moscow is offering Iran help on its missile program in exchange for Iranian weapons for Russian forces in Ukraine. This is the CIA director warned that Tehran's nuclear program is advancing at a, quote, worrisome pace. So do we now confront the reality of a new axis of evil, perhaps? Moscow, Beijing and Tehran. Does the U.S. have the strategic capacity and readiness to deal with what looks like a widening confrontation? Well, I'm pleased to be speaking about all this and more this week with my guest Ian Bremmer, founder and president of Eurasia Group, a geopolitical risk research and consulting firm. Ian's a widely read and followed commentator on global politics and strategy. He's held positions at New York University, Columbia University, and the Asia Society, among others. He's the author of several books, including Every Nation for Itself, Winners and Losers in a G-Zero World. That G-Zero World is a concept that Ian identified to explain a global context in which there's no dominant superpower. And Ian Bremer joins me now. Ian, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Very happy to be with you. Lots to talk about, lots of things happening in the world of geopolitics. Let's start with China. A lot of information coming out about China in the last week or so. And let's start with this journal report that we had earlier in the week about the US Energy Department concluding with a, must be said, a low level of confidence that the COVID virus did indeed leak from the Wuhan lab. Now they joined the FBI in concluding that, but there are several other agencies that think it did not come from a lab. In fact, it came from the wet market and other other intelligence agencies are undecided. So this doesn't dramatically change the story. But what does it mean if there is now at least a rising serious possibility that in the U.S. intelligence community's view, or at least a large part of the U.S. intelligence community's view, that COVID did come from a lab leak? How do you think this affects U.S.-China relations, which are already in a pretty rocky condition? Does this change much? Well, first, Jerry, um, I want to give you credit for in two minutes describing more sensibly what was actually reported in the Wall Street Journal than 99% of the people talking about it publicly and on social media, which is exactly right. The government doesn't know. The government hasn't known. Let's be clear. Part of the reason the government doesn't know is because the Chinese refuse to be transparent with the U.S., with the scientific community, or with the World Health Organization, not to mention with their own citizens. And that, of course, is the big piece here, that from day one, we didn't know that there was human-to-human transmission of a new and extremely dangerous virus because the Chinese government didn't see fit to share that information with anyone. That's why this is such a big global problem. And that problem's not going away. The Chinese are actually today under Xi Jinping producing a lot less transparency in data than they even were 10 years ago when he came into power. So that's a big problem. And the lack of trust 
between the two most powerful countries in the world, irrespective of where COVID came from, is, of course, allowing for a much more polarized relationship, a much more politicized relationship, frankly, one where whenever anything that smells like it might have a whiff of scandal becomes public, there's so much pressure on the U.S. government, whoever it is, to take a harder line, to take a swing, to take a whack at a country that, frankly, we need to have at least some functional relationship with. That's getting a lot harder to do, Jerry. I think the Biden administration just wants to kind of look past this COVID issue. I mean, again, maybe because of the intelligence uncertainty. But if you think about the reality of it, if it is true, and again, there seems to be a, a large number of people in the intelligence community who believe it is too, it does seem a serious possibility this came from a lab leak. Eight million people have died, I think, at the last count, I think, around the world from COVID. If that happened as a result of Chinese incompetence or negligence or recklessness or whatever, the US can't just kind of let that go, can it? The international community can't just let it go. Again, I think, Jerry... I go to a bigger fundamental problem, which is that even when leaving aside the negligence, leaving aside, because there would have been negligence in the wet market too. I mean, there would have been just a lack of basic health protocols that are allowing for vastly more infectious disease to come out of China than should be the case in this environment. And the fact that they're not willing to work with the World Health Organization, which is weak, and it can be captured by their donors and all the rest, but they're, they're trying to do the best they can with limited resources, and they've been completely hobbled by the Chinese government. That's a serious problem. So wherever this came from, Jerry, and you and I are never going to know, but the fact is that we've got a big problem. We've got a big problem because for decades, we thought that As the Chinese were getting more integrated into Western institutions, they would become more politically and economically open. They haven't become. And that means that they have a lot more power, a lot more influence, a lot more impact on all of us around the world, on all 8 billion of us on this planet. And yet we don't trust them any more than we did 30 or 40 years ago. So that's a serious, serious problem. And does Biden want to get past that? I don't know if he wants to get past it. I think he's trying to maintain, as he would say, a floor in the U.S.-China relationship. He wants to make sure it doesn't tilt into escalating crisis that we can't manage. And he's having a hard time doing that, not because of COVID, because of the balloon, because of the Nancy Pelosi trip to Taiwan, because of the intelligence on maybe the Chinese want to provide weapons to the Russians. I mean, on and on and on. It's getting harder for the most important geopolitical relationship in the world to be managed with even a modicum of stability. That's a serious problem. Let's talk about China and Russia now. Another U.S. intelligence report, which, let's be fair to the U.S. intelligence communities, was accurate about Russia's plans to invade Ukraine a year ago. Now it's saying that it has intelligence that China is considering at least transferring weapons to Russia. And of course, the administration is very vehemently warning them against that. What's your sense here? This would be a big escalation. It's something the Chinese have not done so far, despite their relationship without limits with Xi Jinping's relationship with Vladimir Putin. It's something they've resisted doing. I mean, what's your interpretation of this story? Is this kind of a feint by China? Maybe is this intended to hasten, you know, some sort of diplomatic solution if one exists to Russia, Ukraine, because they're going to significantly up the ante with Chinese weapons? Is it something else? 
What's your sense of what's going on here in this relationship between China and Russia and what it may mean for the way the war progresses? First, let's recognize that this was actively leaked, this intelligence, by the United States in conjunction with the UK Prime Minister and the NATO Secretary General. So this was not trying to push it under the rug. This was, if the Chinese actually go ahead and do this, this fundamentally changes the relationship. We really don't want that to happen. We need to put them on notice that this is serious and it will have consequences. And that was done. That was done a week ago, and I'm glad it happened. Now, I think there are a few reasons why the Chinese might have been engaged in those conversations. One is because maybe they thought they could get away with it without the West knowing and provide some support for their friends, the Russians, and tilt the military balance on the ground a little bit farther in their favor. That's possible. It's possible. And then Western intelligence being made public made it clear to the Chinese, that's not on. This is going to be known and known very publicly. Second, they might have had no such intention, but they wanted to put more pressure in conjunction with their own 12-point peace plan on countries in Europe, in particular, that are softening a little bit in their support for Ukraine, maybe Republicans in the U.S. that are softening a little bit in their support for Ukraine, saying, look, support our peace plan. We've shown restraint so far in not providing weapons for the Russians. We're giving you an avenue to we can all talk, but this could go a lot worse for you if you continue in that direction. And even telling Biden, in a way, you want to keep going with F-16s, you want to keep going with weapons that can strike inside Russia, we're not going to just sit. At some point, we're going to provide weapons for these guys too. So that it could have been a preemptive deterrent effect on the part of the Chinese. But whatever it reflected from Xi Jinping, I think what we do know is that the Chinese government intends to accept an invitation from Putin for Xi Jinping to Moscow, which they wouldn't have done three or six months ago. And this plus the peace 12-point plan, I think, is setting the stage for that. And I also will say that I would be quite surprised, given the message that has been sent from the West, if the Chinese were to actually implement on sending any meaningful direct military support to Russia. We need to recognize that Western support for Ukraine is supporting a country that was illegally invaded. Chinese support for Russia would be supporting a rogue state. Three General Assembly resolutions declaring that this war is illegal, and the Chinese providing support for them would be an illegal act. I really don't think the Chinese want to be on the wrong side of a strong majority of the world's countries on this issue. The other question, obviously, for China too, China's economic relationship with the West, with the United States, but also with Europe is very significant. You were just in Europe. You were at the Munich Security Conference. You had lots of interesting conversations there and out. I think one of the concerns that a lot of us have over here is that the Europeans, have, I think it's fair to say, have been shown admirable kind of solidarity with as regards Ukraine. But there are doubts about, given the the broader strategic context of the US and China, whether or not the Europeans are really prepared to go along with the US in its increasingly tough posture towards China. Presumably, you know, if China were to support militarily to support Russia against Ukraine, that would nudge the Europeans 
as I say, especially the Germans who are very dependent on China in terms of their economic relationship as so many other European countries are, presumably that would help to nudge the Europeans further towards the United States in a way that may not actually suit Xi Jinping's long-term objectives. I think that's exactly right. And it also wouldn't suit his short-term objectives. I mean, after jettisoning with such sudden and dramatic shift, the zero COVID policy, Xi Jinping and his government have been on a charm offensive widely remarked on, including in your newspaper, across European capitals and elsewhere, wanting to engage with the private sector, saying that their marketplace is open, not always credibly, but nonetheless, they want higher levels of economic growth this year and next year. And the fastest way to chill that would be sending weapons to the Russians after this warning in a war that the Europeans are saying is a European war. I mean, I do believe that the UK, the Germans and the French would take very seriously American secondary sanctions against China in that incident. And I think they'd get on board. This would be a horrible thing for the Chinese to do. So I have a fair amount of confidence that the Chinese won't go ahead and provide these weapons. We've got to take a break there. But when we come back, I'll have more with Ian Bremmer. We'll be talking about political tensions here at home in the United States and what they may mean for American foreign policy. Stay with us. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Ian Bremmer of the Eurasia Group, a geopolitical risk and consulting firm. And we're talking about the perilous state of international relations at the moment. Let's talk briefly about Iran. I know it may seem slightly tangential, but it isn't. And I'll explain why. We just had also another report this week that Russia may be in the process of exchanging uh, support, helping the Iranian government, helping the mullahs in Iran with their missile program in exchange. Now, we know Iran has been giving substantial amounts of assistance to Russia and Ukraine, particularly through drones, but increasingly in other forms too. You know, for Russia, which is obviously a signatory to the JCPOA, on uh, which obviously we know is in abeyance at the moment, but that attempt by the US, the Europeans, China, Russia, to get Iran to back off its nuclear program, this does look a little bit like Russia is entering a tighter embrace with Iran. You know, again, we know also Russia was working alongside Iran in terms of the war in Syria. This does look, if that's happening, looks like a further escalation and, and particularly supplying missiles to Iran, a country which could threaten Saudi Arabia, which could threaten Israel, most importantly, as we know. It, it all sort of suggests to me, and maybe I'm overstating it here, but like a, a steadily kind of intensifying cold or possibly even hot war here with Russia, China, Iran on one side against NATO on the other. How do you see that latest development? I completely agree with you on Russia and Iran. I don't agree on China. I want to be clear about this. The Chinese government understands that they need economic interdependence with the world. And that includes definitively advanced industrial democracies. They don't want to be tarred with the same brush as the Russians even as the Iranians. They really don't. And the Chinese, that's why the Chinese, despite the friends with no global limits comments on February the 4th, a year ago at the Beijing Olympics, that's why they haven't gone ahead and provided these weapons. They haven't broken U.S. sanctions. The Iranians are a different story. The Iranians are a rogue state. 
Iranians, they've been cut off completely economically by the West. They are in a hot war, a proxy war, espionage, drone strikes, terrorism, you name it, against Israel and against America's allies in the Gulf. And I increasingly see Russia as a rogue state like Iran. Russia has been cut off from the G7. We've never seen that happen for a G20 economy. Their sovereign assets have been frozen. Their oligarchs' assets have been frozen. They can't travel. They've got visa restrictions. They've got 10 rounds of sanctions that 27 European countries have unanimously agreed to. The gas has been cut off by the Germans. They're not going to go back to it. I mean, they are treated as a pariah by the United States and its allies. Hell, even French President Macron doesn't want to talk with Putin right now. That's quite saying something, right? And I think when you put all of that together, I do believe that we are now looking at an Iranian relationship with Russia that is not just an axis, but it reflects the most powerful rogue state, Russia, that we've ever dealt with in history. 6,000 nuclear weapons, massive cyber and espionage capabilities that I do not think are just going to be focused on Ukraine in the next few years. I think it's a much bigger problem. It's a huge geopolitical risk. Okay, on to Russia, Ukraine, obviously. Again, you were in Europe, you were listening to and talking to a lot of those officials in NATO and allied countries, and also, of course, the Chinese are represented there. And we've seen continuing fighting, obviously, what most people would probably characterize as a stalemate with maybe breakthroughs here by Russia, there by Ukraine. But we're all anticipating, we're expecting this significant Russian offensive, spring offensive, whatever you want to call it. Give us your sense of where the war stands. And if it is a stalemate, what, if anything, could break that stalemate in the next few months? Well, it's been a stalemate for the last few months. It's not at all clear it's going to be a stalemate for the next few. I think there are a couple of different dynamics at play. First, let's look at the Ukrainians. They really need ammunition. They need about 750,000 rounds of ammunition in the next three months if they're going to be able to launch a meaningful counteroffensive in April or May. They want to be able to do that. The Americans do not have the ammunition to give them. They have some, but not enough. And the U.S. is not going to start a war economy because multinationals that could produce that ammunition aren't going to have the guarantees that they can make their investment back over five or 10 years time. So you've got some coming from the U.S. and you have the Americans going around the world trying to get more from countries like South Korea and Israel and even India and Pakistan. And there's an open question as to how much ammunition the Ukrainians are going to get. And if they get enough, in addition to some 12 brigades that the Americans are presently standing up by June, that's 50,000 new troops, well-trained, well-equipped, much better than the Russians are, that would give them a meaningful capacity to launch a significant counteroffensive against the Russians in southeast Ukraine. That's a big deal. At maximum, that could mean breaking the land bridge between Russia and Crimea and therefore cutting off core supply lines for the Russians. That'd be a big problem for Putin. So that's what the Ukrainians are up to. The F-16s, the heavy tanks, they don't really have any impact for that timeline. The Russians, of course, are raising a lot more troops than the Ukrainians are. They're much more divided in terms of their command structure. Their morale is much lower. Their equipment is much more poor. But they can throw those troops, as we see happening in Bakhmut over the course of the past months. And there'll be more of that going forward. 
Also, the Ukrainians are running out of land-to-air ammunition, air defense, and if they run out and the West doesn't get them more, again, not a sexy thing like F-16s, but really matter for war fighting, then the Russians will be able to use their jet fighters, their jet bombers, against the Ukrainians again, which they haven't been able to do since the beginning of the war. They've got about 700 of them. That would be a serious problem for Ukrainian frontline defenses and also potentially for civilian centers for cities if the Russians decided they wanted to carpet bomb. So I think we're quite uncertain at this point as to where the war is going to go over the next six months. And depending on that, we'll determine to what extent either the Ukrainians and or the Russians would be more willing than they presently are, which is about zero, to sit down and talk about negotiations, a ceasefire and the rest. What about the US and the, the NATO provided assistance? Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, was in Ukraine, I think, today, pledging more assistance. Joe Biden obviously was there last week pledging more assistance and more importantly, you know, making a kind of a rhetorical stand over Ukraine. As you just mentioned, the F-16s, they want fighter jets. Again, this is something the US has obviously denied up to now. Even at the weekend, President Biden and other officials were saying, no, not now. But not now seem to imply, well, then maybe down the road. And this has been the pattern we've seen over the last year. Ian, is it? And it, all kinds of things were ruled out. Tanks were ruled out. Long-range missiles were ruled out. And then after a time, as the war dragged on, the U.S. agreed to supply them. So answer me this. Do you think the U.S. is going to supply the F-16s? And, and how important would they be? What's your sense of what actual difference they would make to the fighting in Ukraine if the U.S. and NATO allies did supply significant numbers of aircraft? I just don't think we know. I mean, we're talking about a minimum of six to nine months in terms of getting the Ukrainians sufficiently trained up. They would be able to plausibly use them. And the war is going to be in a different place at that point. So I just I don't think there's any problem with the idea of getting them to them. And maybe you start training now. I think there's a reasonable argument to make there. But not at all clear to me that it's going to make a difference in terms of what we're talking about near term. And that's what really matters. Really, 95% of what we should be talking about right now is ammunition and are these additional brigades. And the brigades are going to come and the ammunition, we're just not sure. And that matters a lot. That is life or death. I mean, for all of what you hear the Americans, the Europeans saying, we're with you as long as it takes. And I mean, I don't know, an 80-year-old president can say things like as long as it takes. But leaving that aside, the Ukrainians don't like the formulation. And I heard that directly from the Ukrainians in Munich. They don't feel like they can fight this war as long as it takes. A permanent war on Ukrainian territory is not a winning strategy. They need more support now so they can take more land back, get back to those February 24th borders and the illegal occupation, and then hopefully get a ceasefire so that they can rebuild their country so that they can join the EU, so that they can, you know, sort of get their refugees back. I mean, get their human capital back, have an economy again. Like, that's where we need to get. The F-16s aren't an answer for that. And will the Americans continue to be as strong in six months' time as the Americans have been for the last 12 months? I don't know about that, Jerry. I mean, you saw Trump go to East Palestine, Ohio, exhorting the crowd Where's Biden in Kiev? Why is he supporting the Ukrainians? He should be here. You see Ron DeSantis, who is probably running for president. And a year ago, three years ago, he was exhorting the American president to send more military support to Ukraine. He's not saying that now. He's now saying too much going to Ukraine, not enough going to the Americans. And I think he sees that there's a significant weakening of support in the United States as a whole, and particularly among Republican voters. And he wants to be where the population, where the base is. If the political cycle moves in that direction, it is going to be a lot harder for the Americans 
to provide that level of support for Ukraine next year. And the Russians see that. Now, there's no question that you've got people like McConnell and McCarthy, congressional leaders for the Republicans, have Biden's back. And they say very clearly when it comes to Russia, Ukraine and not much else, they're on team Biden. But that's not where I see the Republican base going. That's not where I see the presidential nomination going. And that is a huge concern for the polls, for the Balts, for the Nordics, and most importantly, for Ukraine. I want to come back to the US politics briefly at the end, uh, Ian. But let me just very quickly on sort of final question on the war itself. You talked about Ukrainians trying to get a ceasefire maybe at some point. They continue to state, as you, of course you would expect them to state, and no one would in, in any way object to them doing this, but they obviously continue to state that their objective is the complete expulsion of Russian forces, not just from the pre-February 24, 2022 lines, in other words, out of all of the eastern Ukraine, southern Ukraine, where they've been in, in the last year, but also critically out of Crimea, which of course was annexed by Vladimir Putin in 2014. Again, you talk to these people all the time, you talk to people there, you talk to people in Europe, you talk to people here in the United States. Do you know anybody who seriously thinks that this war will end with Russia having withdrawn from all of Ukraine, including Crimea? I think that even the president of Ukraine privately understands that Crimea is not going to get resolved militarily. It will have to be resolved over the long term with negotiations of some sort. He certainly has had those conversations privately with people. I think that matters. It is very clear that a military assault directly on Crimea would be a red line for Putin. I think it would potentially lead to the use of weapons of mass destruction. I also think that the Americans and NATO allies are not all that concerned about that issue. I personally consider Crimea different in the sense that during Ukrainian independence, Crimea was autonomous. It voted for its own parliament. It had a Russian tricolor type flag atop of it. And it made its own policy, not foreign policy, but it made its own policy for the peninsula. So it's very clear to me that Ukraine would have a very different sort of orientation militarily when you talk about Crimea than when you talk about all the territory the Russians have taken since February 24th. So that's where I think we are. But the point is really not about Crimea, because for the foreseeable future, the Ukrainians really have no way of taking Crimea for the coming months. We're really talking about how much of the land that they have had stolen from them since February 24th, they can recapture. And as I mentioned before, that's really a question about artillery, about new troops, fresh troops, and about how well the Russians are going to be able to hold their own lines. That's the open question here. Back to, we were talking about this, about U.S. domestic politics, in particular domestic politics with regard to Ukraine and Russia and China. One of the arguments you hear from those who are skeptical about continuing or unlimited, shall we say, support for Ukraine, as is the Biden administration's policy. One of the things you hear, okay, a certain type of kind of populist politician that says, why aren't we doing more to help Americans rather than spending $100 billion on Ukraine? But you hear about what might be considered a kind of slightly more thoughtful, measured approach, which is, look, the problem with this is that this is a distraction from the larger strategic challenge of China. In fact, should China decide to up the ante with Taiwan, we don't necessarily mean a full-scale invasion, but significantly up the hostilities to towards Taiwan, we are facing a situation where both our strategic focus and a significant amount of our resources and our defense manufacturing capability is being devoted to helping the Ukrainians fight this war against Russia, when actually the bigger strategic challenge is China and our hand could be called on China at any point. Do you think 
first of all, do you think there's any merit to that argument about well, we're going after the wrong target, as it were? And secondly, how powerful do you think that becomes in terms of domestic politics and in terms of the Republican Party foreign policy establishment in particular? I don't think it holds a lot of weight with the Republican foreign policy establishment, though I accept the fact that China is the bigger strategic long-term concern of the United States, not Russia. Russia is 2% of global GDP. They just happen to have 6,000 nuclear weapons. They're a much greater proximate danger to Europe. China is going to be the largest economy in the world in all likelihood by 2030. They are roughly a technological parity with the United States in many core areas of advanced technology. And if the Americans take their eye off the ball, they're going to be in serious trouble in terms of being able to effectively compete on the global stage against China. So this is clearly where strategic orientation should be. But that's not primarily a military issue. I mean, I I don't think this is about fighting the Chinese militarily in the near term with a 100-mile amphibious assault across the Strait of Taiwan. I think it's much more about the fact that China is dominant economically vis-a-vis Taiwan, and they want to use that leverage to further integrate Taiwan into the mainland. And the Americans need to have strategies and policies that either reduce that threat or make the threat less impactful for the United States and its allies. And I think you are starting to see that with the CHIPS Act, for example, with export controls on semiconductors, for example, with getting the Dutch and the Japanese and the South Koreans and others aligned with U.S. policy with enormous national security implications to try to maintain a lead on semiconductors globally and on other areas like 5G and quantum computing and generative AI, places where the Americans, frankly, had taken their eyes off the ball for decades. I mean, the way that the Germans took their eye off the ball when they decided they were going to get all of their gas from Russia, irrespective of the national security concerns. That's what the Americans have done for 20 years now with Taiwan, and that's now finally being addressed. So no, I don't think that the Russia-Ukraine argument holds weight at all, but I think the fact that the Americans are finally starting to address the real strategic issue here is very, very important. You coined the term a G-Zero world in your book, your fascinating book about dealing with in a G-Zero world, which captured, I think, quite well the way in which geopolitics had moved after the Cold War. So, you know, in the 1990s, we looked like we had one dominant superpower, our old friend Charles Krauthammer's famous unipolar moment. The United States strode the world like a colossus. It had military larger than the next 10 militaries combined. It had geopolitical and strategic and soft power and everything else. Then along comes 9-11, along comes the quagmire of Iraq and the disappointment of Afghanistan. And then we have a financial crisis. And all the time, China is rising, India is growing. And now we're seeing Russia, while it's not growing economically, in any significant ways, flexing its muscles politically and has been for the last 15 years or so. Are we still in a G-Zero world or are we kind of back closer to a sort of Cold War world of heavily armed, ideologically opposed camps? I mean, how would you characterize the world, the broad strategic context that we live in today? Well, first, Jerry, thanks for your kind comments on both the, the concept and the book, and I appreciate that. It's something I think about a lot, obviously. I think that the G-Zero world, this geopolitical recession, as I've also characterized, that has created a lot of crises. And from those crises, we are either going to get a much stronger, more collective West G7 NATO alignment of global democracies, or we're going to get a lot more confrontation. And I think we don't yet know. We're right now at the beginning of the biggest geopolitical confrontation that we've seen since 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And 
We don't know how that's going to go. We know it's very dangerous. And the Chinese so far have largely been on the sidelines. It's unclear they're going to be. The global South is largely not aligned with the United States and its allies on these issues. Unclear that's going to persist. There's a lot of big moving pieces right now on the geopolitical chessboard in ways that you and I have not seen in our lifetime. Isn't even, as you say, the global South is rising, but isn't even among what we used to call the West, right? There's really uncertainty about the West's identity these days. We have a lot of people, including in this country, in the United States, Donald Trump, perhaps most obviously, but he has a lot of support in the Republican Party too, who don't even necessarily see the traditional West, NATO, standing up for all of the things that NATO did during the Cold War necessarily is our objective. You've got governments in Europe, you've got the Hungarian government, which is highly skeptical about this and also, you know, but a member of NATO, a member of the EU too. So understanding this moment is particularly complicated because even if we are thinking in terms of old Cold War style blocks emerging, there are pretty significant differences about the whole identity and values of those blocks, particularly in the West, are there not? So good news and bad news on this front. Good news is that the number of crises that have hit the Europeans in particular, Brexit and the fallout, the pandemic and the fallout, and now particularly the Russian war, have gotten you a much stronger EU politically. They've got stronger fiscal policy, energy policy, tech policy, security policy, health policy, you name it. And they have those policies. The EU is stronger because of these crises. But these crises are existentially threatening to Europe. And so I would argue that even the Hungarians are much more willing to toe the line ultimately from Brussels because they know they need the money, because they know they need the help. That's why they've been voting unanimously for 10 rounds of sanctions now. Who would have thought that was going to come from Orban's Hungary last year? And yet you got it. You got them to vote in favor of allowing the Ukrainians into the EU. That's a big deal for a leader that says that he's in favor of a Russian-style political system. The United States, on the other hand, is much more divided. It's geopolitically much more secure. It's far away from these crises. It's in a much better economic position, but politically it's more fraught. America first, of course, was not meant to appeal to any allies outside the United States. And frankly, Biden's U.S. foreign policy for an American middle class isn't necessarily a selling point for the Canadians or the Europeans or the Japanese. And so I do think there's a bigger question about whether the United States is prepared to use these crises to try to create a stronger democracy at home and the ability to lead by example abroad, something that the Americans have increasingly done a poor job of for the last 30 years. Isn't the reality, though, Ian, that a lot of Americans, whether you agree with them or not, part of the deeper problem here is that they feel, and many Europeans do too, the British who voted for Brexit, for example, don't really feel that their governments, their societies, their, if you like, the broader nation of which they're a part, they don't actually share the values, right? They think that those, they think it's, they're run by sort of progressive elites who pursue their own agenda. And so, again, it's, it's not just that I think that these sort of, you know, radical populists are kind of somehow exploiting dissatisfaction. There's a genuine debate going on and a genuine doubt among a lot of people on the right in this country and to some extent even on the left in this country who just are not even sure about the identity of their country and whether or not it is actually something that, that actually is even worth defending. Sure. I mean, globalism and globalization are two different things. And the idea that by pursuing globalization, that all boats are automatically going to rise, that is a globalist ideology that largely failed American working and middle classes, and not just American working and middle classes, and it led to a lot of anti-establishment sentiment, both on the left and on the right. That's a big thing that Americans are struggling with right now, or confronting. It happens to be occurring at the same time 
that the Chinese are much more powerful and the Russians are much more hostile. And trying to deal with the push and pull of those dynamics is a very, very big challenge. The EU is in a much better position to do that because the European Union actually has ceded a level of sovereignty to a supranational political organization that has governance, it has technocrats in charge. The Americans don't have that. In the United States, when Washington gets weaker, what happens is the states get stronger. That means more divide between red and blue, whether you're Texas, you're Florida, you're California, you're New York. And that, of course, is going to make it harder for the Americans, even as they're economically in a much better position. In fact, in some ways, because they're in a much better economic position, they can afford to be more politically dysfunctional going forward. Ian Bremer, Eurasia Group, thank you very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Jerry, really happy to be with you, man. That's it for this week's episode of Free Expression. I'll be back again next week with another in-depth conversation and examination of a major topic that's shaping our world. In the meantime, thanks very much for joining us and goodbye. Goodbye.